All right. Before I, I dive into our study today, um, let me just say one, one quick word. We're starting a new series that's called uh, Jesus and Sex. And so if you're thinking, you know, my kid didn't really want to go to Bible class today, this may not be the day to have them upstairs. So maybe go have a conversation with them. Go back downstairs if you have any children who are still up here. Uh, we're going to have a conversation in a study about Jesus and sex. So before we dive into that, could we just kind of pause and, and pray? Oh God, our Father, we invite you to speak and to work. Would you settle us? Lord, would you speak a word of conviction to those who need it? Would you speak a word of comfort to those who need it? Would you speak a word of hope, of love, of belonging? As we think about our kids and all that they're doing with back to school and promoting, and as we think about marriages and we think about parenting, there's just so many pressures. But Lord, our desire as a, as a people is to just honor you. And we trust that your ways are the ways of life. And we want the good life. So would you lead us? Would you lead us in the way of life everlasting? Would you do it this morning as we contemplate sex and desire and our relationships? Lord, would you bless me with a special measure this morning for my own nerves and for anyone else who's feeling a little unsafe right now? Would you remind us of your love? We invite you to work among us. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Christ's name, amen. So, Jesus and sex, this is your first time here sorry. <laughs> could be worse. Your in-laws could be here. Could be worse. You could be the in-laws. My wife is going to be here, and no one knows, like, the hard stuff in my life of sex and sexual desire like her. She gets a front row seat to all of my sin. And I also know that everybody has a story that includes sex. Everybody's story includes sex. And sometimes it's a story of trauma, sometimes it's a story of longing, sometimes it's a story of both. And I don't know your story, and I'm talking to, uh, I don't know how many people, let's call it 100 people right now. And so I want you to know my heart is for you and for you, your story. And more importantly, so is God's heart. God's heart is for you. And so I, I want that to kind of frame all that we say in the next month. The series is called Jesus and Sex, which is a little ironic because Jesus never had sex. That's not the miracle, though. The miracle is that Jesus was born to a woman who had never had sex. <laughs> Why are we listening to Jesus when it comes to sex? Culturally, it may seem odd to listen to a guy who lived 2,000 years ago who had no experience in the matter, but of course, 
we're not speaking culturally. We're, we're listening not only to the, to the voice of God, but when we look at Jesus. You know, Scripture can say a lot of things, but when we look at Jesus, we're hearing from the designer and the inventor of sex. He, he's the lover of your soul, but he's also the inventor of sex. And so we, we come to Jesus because we know we can trust him on this. Jesus has wisdom and life when it comes to sex. Jesus isn't just the rule maker. He's the designer. And so I, I think it makes a lot of sense to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you lead us in the way of life when it comes to sex? And the Gospel of Matthew has the most of Jesus' teachings on sex. So if you look at Luke or if you look at Mark or if you look at John, basically anything that Jesus says there about sex, he's already said in Matthew plus more. And so what we're going to do this month is look at the text in the Gospel of Matthew that come from Jesus himself on Jesus' view of sex. Today is going to be part one, sexual desire. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we'll look at Matthew 19 and we'll look at marriage. And then in part three, we'll look at some of Jesus' teachings on singleness. So sexual desire, marriage, and singleness. And that kind of will encapsulate all that Jesus says about sex in the Gospel of Matthew. Today, though, the Sermon on the Mount is where we start. Sermon on the Mount is a hard text. It's Matthew chapter 5. If you have a coffeehouse Bible, it's page 830. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus raises the bar in just about every way. And one of those ways is when it comes to sex and sexual desire. Take a look at what Jesus says here. He says, you have, heard, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see this line of, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This is a refrain that he keeps doing back and forth, back and forth, about six times in the Sermon on the Mount. One of those is about sexual desire. You have heard. That's where I want to start today. Before we ever get to how the people that were at the bottom of the mountain listening to Jesus preach, before we get to how what they heard, I'm really interested in what you have heard. And no, you don't have to offer it up. But just think for a minute about really where you have heard before we get to even what you've heard, where have you heard? Let me ask the, the question like this. Where are we hearing about sex today? Now, in Jesus' culture, most of the people would have heard about sex from family, from parents who were Proverbs, the first eight chapters. It's about a father telling his son all about sex. It's about promiscuous women and how to avoid them. It's about sexual integrity and holiness. And there's these conversations that have this phrase over and over, hear my son, hear my son, listen to me, my son, let's talk about sex. But that is not the case anymore in the United States. Kara Powell in her book, Sticky Faith, she studies teenagers and young adults. And she says, studies, multiple studies have shown that the more religious a home is, the less they talk about sex. So most of us, if you grew up in a religious home, we didn't hear it from mom and dad. I've heard from many, many people who may have had one awkward conversation with mom and dad a little too late. And so where else would they have heard? Well, in Jesus' day, you'd hear from family, and then you'd also hear from church, a.k.a. synagogue. And so every, every week on Saturday, Sabbath, you go to the synagogue and you hear a reading of the word. It's extended readings. It would include readings from the law, and the law is filled with commands about, about sex. It's stories of 
sex. And so conversation's happening at home and it's happening at church, but <laughs> it's not happening at home anymore. And in many cases, it's not happening at church either. I was talking with a lot of our uh, young singles and I was feeling a little pressure on what to say, but whenever I talked to them, they didn't feel the pressure. They were mostly just grateful that somebody was trying to have the conversation at church because it seems like a topic that a lot of churches avoid. I called a few ministers and I was talking to them about how to have conversations publicly about sex. And many of my kind of minister preacher friends, their approach is most sex conversations are better in a coffee shop than on a public stage. And I, I actually totally agree with that. And yet, whenever you move the conversations to the coffee shop, they never happen at the public stage. And so a lot of our desire to hear from the Lord, from scripture, and from people who are studying and thinking wisely about this, they don't happen. And so we're left with questions and confusion. And so we're left to do our own research. And so normally when I ask people, how do you know about sex? It's, it's really two things. It's practice and it's pornography. You, you learn from the experiences of others and then you start experimenting and your own sexual story starts happening long before anyone else ever speaks into it. Aside from like the fifth grade health class, sure. But past that, it's this whole world of curiosity and desire and confusion and questions and shame and guilt that is all internalized and it's a very lonely place to begin a sexual story. The question of where we've heard matters. The question of where your sexual story started really is important. But the what is also important. And so if you're not hearing from home, mom and dad aren't having lots of conversations about God's design for sex. And if you're not hearing from church because they would rather have those conversations in a more delicate and a private way, where are we hearing? We're hearing from culture. We're hearing from the stories of friends. We're hearing from our own stories. We're seeing it on, on things like The Office or Friends or The Bachelor or Game, Game of Thrones or whatever it is. Culture, it, it's Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, like the best-selling novel series of the last decade. It's just it's not that we have no inputs when it comes to stories of sex. It's, it's that actually we're inundated, but the stories that we're inundated with are competing against one another in radically different stories or visions of sex and marriage and how these things need to fit. Can I try to illustrate this? And this may not go over well because it's another two-by-two two chart for me. I love two-by-twos but man, this may not go. I, it's not like I've got this from some book. This is just me trying to come up with some ways of understanding four unique stories of sex, all right? So the top axis says that sex is a soulmate idea. Sex is for soulmate. And then on the opposite of soulmate is sex is for convenience. Does that make sense? The difference between that soulmate and convenience. Now, the left to right axis is that sex is appetite. It's, it's physical, it's, it's a hunger. And the opposite of sex is appetite is that sex is identity. Sex is, it's, it's almost everything. All right, so let's try to locate four of the most common sex stories that we hear in our culture. I'm going to take these one by one. And there's a couple of adjectives that will kind of help understand what these words are. The first story of sex is what I'm calling platonic. Now, I was a philosophy major in college. Love Plato. Plato tells about Socrates. 
And Socrates has this vision of love, of eros. And he says that there's this earthy, physical, kind of appetite-oriented love. And he says we have to get beyond that kind of vulgar love. And we have to go on to a divine love. He called it the ladder of love. The ladder of love is where you leave physicality behind and you ascend to greater depths of love, like spiritual love. Have you ever heard of like a platonic friendship? Platonic friendships are not having sex. That's the whole point, is that they love good and beautiful and true things together. They have so, they're soulmates, to use Plato's language, in, in the sense that their souls are united in something, but their souls are united in something that isn't sexual. Because in a Platonic view, sex is dirty. Sex is appetite. Sex is bad. Sex is earthy and vulgar and physical. We need to get beyond this. Now, you may have never heard that story explicitly because you haven't been reading Plato. But this story is implicit in a lot, especially of religious communities. Now, it's explicit in the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church says that the most holy people in the community are required to practice celibacy, which means no sex. So if you want to be a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, if you want to be a nun, you have to take a vow that you will not marry and that you will not have sex. Why? Because they believe the Platonic story, that sex is in many ways dirty, it's bad. And if you look at the history of the church, now this may surprise singles today, but if you look at the history of the church, the church has very often treated married people like minorities and like people who are settling for something far less. Why? Because sex is dirty, it's bad, it's physical. Does this make sense? The Platonic view of sex. Many of you would totally reject this view, and yet, the week of your honeymoon, you still have these recurring thoughts that, is this okay? Is this good? Is this dirty? Because I feel a little dirty. It's a, it's a holdover from this Platonic view of sex, the story that's told. Another story that's told is down, down here. This is, you remember, it's the overlap of convenience and appetite, convenience and appetite, and, and the casual view of sex says that sex is for pleasure and it's for fun. It's for pleasure and it's for fun. This is really the American view of sex after what's called the sexual revolution. I'll probably talk more about sexual revolution next week. But in the sexual revolution, one, one author, she says this, uh, it was the destigmatization and demystification of non-marital sex and the reduction of sexual relations in general to a kind of hygienic recreation in which anything goes so long as those involved are consenting adults. The view of casual sex says it looks like a college hookup. It's convenient. <laughs> There's no soulmate here. It's just we happen to be in the same place wanting some of the same things. Let's go have a little fun. Sex is appetite. If you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're aroused, go play. This is a very dominant view of sex in our culture, and we have seen, in many cases, this creep into the church, especially churches that are silent about sex. And so many young people think that things like moving in together is just kind of neutral. What's the harm? We're just trying it out. It's a little fun. So there's this casual culture of sex. Let me talk about the traditional story of sex. Tr tr traditional story still maintains a measure of convenience. Have you ever heard of a marriage of convenience? 
It's like a political alliance. It's an arranged marriage. And yet, there's still an identity piece. What I mean is that a traditional view of sex looks at sex for procreation and for family. And so it's identity in a traditional view comes from you being married and you having children, especially in traditional cultures, sons. And so you see some of this even in Scripture where there's arranged marriages. You remember the story of Jacob who married the wrong woman? He's like, whoops, let's go through with it anyway. <laughs> it's just a, totally a marriage of convenience in, in, in many ways. So a traditional view may not be your view, and yet, and I think we still see echoes or, or kind of holdovers of the traditional view in our churches. I was reading one article recently by Melody Notkin. It's called Not By Choice, and she's an older single woman who tried all her life to get married, and it never happened. And one of her friends says, well, it's because you're looking for love. She's like, is it so bad to look for love in a marriage? And her friend said, love shmuv. Love shmuv, quote, love shmuv. And so in some of these arranged marriages, there is no love, and it can lead to the neglect of the spouse, especially the women, and the oppression that follows. A fourth story that you'll still see in the American culture, and perhaps the most prominent, is a romantic story. And the romantic story is about passion, and it's about fulfillment. So the romantics were European and British kind of poets and authors in the 1900s and early 20th century. One of those guys was a guy named D.H. Lawrence. His novels are actually still being made into Netflix series, um, if, if that says anything. So D.H. Lawrence, uh, he went to school, and he met his professor, and at some point he was introduced to his professor's wife, and he started writing to her. He wrote and he wrote and he wrote to this woman because he was just madly in love with her. He, he called her the most wonderful woman in all of England. And Frida, uh, the woman, she said, you don't know many women in England. You see, I, I'm a married woman. I have three kids and I've had multiple affairs. I'm not the best of the best here. But he just kept writing. He kept persisting. And so eventually they connected and had a passionate affair because this is what a soulmate is all about. She said this. It just had to be. The oneness with all that lives and breathes, the peace of all peace, it does pass all understanding. Fascinating that she's quoting scripture to describe the liberation and salvation of a sexual encounter. There was a few years ago an essay in the New York Times on open marriage, and the author she said she basically sabotaged her marriage with a man and made him allow her to go pursue other people. I really just felt like it was right, like it was important for my growth. It was like I was choosing to take a stand for myself and sticking to it. It was so strong, that feeling. You see, because it's about fulfillment. It's about identity, not identity found in marriage, but identity found in sexual expression and the fulfillment of desires. A lot of times we see this hold over and echo in church too, especially where there's this sense, a lot of singles feel this, like the only way to truly be fulfilled is to be married. A lot of, a lot of the men that I know that struggle with same-sex attraction, they feel this because it's this, it feels like a bind like in order for me to be me, I'd have to 
express myself and be sexually fulfilled? Why can't I be fully human? This view says. So there's four stories. They're all saying different things. And no one's ever laid it out like this for you, where you can kind of parse through. It's just noise. Noise and reverberations and echoes. And it shows up in weird places. Sometimes it shows up in church. Sometimes it shows up on the sitcom. Sometimes it shows up in the bedroom. And you're just not really sure what to do with it all. But what what I want to say is that there's another view, and it's actually the view that Jesus is drawing from whenever he says, you have heard that it was said. In Jesus' culture, they hadn't heard these things, except maybe the Platonic view and the traditional view. But Jesus is drawing distinctions, and he's saying, no, there is another view, and right at the center is where I want to picture this one. And it's at the center because it does two things. It avoids the extremes, and it holds it all together. It avoids it. It holds every one of these longings and desires. It holds them all somehow. And yet, it avoids the abuses and the extremes that can easily show up in what I'm calling a covenant view of sex. The purpose of a covenant view of sex is partnership and faithfulness. That's, that's covenant language. And covenant language, as we'll see throughout the series, is assumed by Jesus and the rest of the authors of our, our books of Scripture. Partnership and faithfulness. And yet, within partnership and faithfulness, it also holds together all of the other desires of each of the competing stories. And the Christian story is the only one that can avoid the destructive extremes of each one and hold on to the beautiful desires of each one. Some, of, some people think that Christians have a low view of sex, but this actually is the opposite of what the case is. Sex is a big deal to Christians. Some say it's inconsequential. No, sex is very consequential. Sex is life. Every one of us was conceived life through sex. And of course, since the 1960s and the sexual revolution, trying to eliminate the consequences of life from sex, in 1960, the first pill was approved by the FDA. By 1972, it's now legal for single people to take. And by 1973, Roe v. Wade becomes the law of the land. But sex is life. That's how we all got here. But sex is also death. You cannot say that sex isn't a big deal. I have dear friends who were sexually molested as children. You want to tell me that that's not a big deal? Sometimes, in many cases, the wounds that cut the deepest were sexual. Sex is a big deal. Sex is also personal. I have a dear friend, a married man, who has same-sex attraction. You want to say that's no big deal to his story and to his marriage? No, it's a huge deal. It's important to me. I remember the first time Kelsey and I had sex was on our wedding night. There were anticipation. There was nerves. There was excitement. There was pressure. No big deal. It felt like a big deal. Sex isn't casual. Sex isn't minor. Sex isn't inconsequential. Sex is a big part of our story and our lives. Sex is a big deal to God. It's this deeply human personal act But Paul says it's not just a personal act. It's a spiritual reality. In 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about being united to a prostitute. He says, you become one flesh. Your your spirit, indwelled by the Spirit of God, joins with a prostitute. It's a spiritual act. It's 
It's a symbolic act, though. It points to the story of Christ united and married to his bride, and the love story of every love story points to the true love story of a man who leaves his father to be joined to his bride in order to experience happily ever after. That's the story of Scripture. Every sexual encounter is an echo of, of the love story that's driving all of creation. And so in our culture, there are these destructive extremes that say that sex is bad, and that is not the Christian view. That say that, that sex is, is just for procreation. That's not the Christian view. That sex is just for pleasure and fun. No, that's not the Christian view. Or that sex is for passion and fulfillment. That's not the Christian view. The Christian view is all of those held together within covenant. Only the Christian story holds all of these together. It, it coheres in a way it, where they're not competing, where they ac- actually fit like a puzzle that's put together. But the only thing that's strong enough to hold together all of this is a covenant. John Mark Comer, he says, a covenant is the only relational container strong enough to hold the nuclear power of sex. So the scriptures affirm the desires underneath every one of these stories. Friendship. You want friendship in a sexual relationship? Genesis 2.18 says, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I'm going to make him a helper fit for him, a suitable companion, a friend. The first human words in the Bible are a love poem from a naked man to a naked woman as he sees a woman for the first time, and he says, at last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He sees a companion, someone like him. Adam is described as being alone in a world full of animals because he didn't have a friend. Sex is inclusive of friendship. Song of Song 516, the woman says of her man, this is my lover, this is my friend. But it also holds together this idea of fun and pleasure. Again, Genesis chapter 2, it uses this phrase of naked and unashamed. There's a lot of playfulness and pleasure that's found all throughout Scripture. But it also holds together family and procreation. Genesis chapter 1, the first command given by God to humans is to be fruitful and multiply. How do we be fruitful? It's sex. By God's design, he gives us the power of procreation. This is a blessing, the power to give life. It holds together fulfillment and passion. Take a look at some of these passages. Proverbs 5, 19. A loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Sometimes it takes taking the Bible literally to really find out what marriage is all about. (laughs) May her breast satisfy you always. Song of Solomon 5.14, a naked woman is admiring her husband and she says, oh, you're like polished ivory. Do you you see the ivory tusk? What could she be talking about? (laughs) Song of Solomon 7, 7 and 8, your stature is like that of the palm. And your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine. Did you know that the Bible is not unashamed when it, the Bible is unashamed when it comes to sex within a covenant? It's beautiful. It's passionate. It's pleasurable. It's for procreation. And it's physical and for friendship. It actually holds all of these together in a beautiful way. This is the view that Jesus is assuming Do Christians have a low view of sex? (laughs) No. Christians have an extremely high view of sex. 
It's created by God as an expression of his covenant love. And then scripture affirms the desires that all are happening within sex, but it locates them within a covenant story or covenant view of sex. And so I think Christians actually have the highest view of sex. So if you have a ton of gold bars, you don't just want to like leave them out. You want to put them in the bank and protect them. I don't keep my table saw out for the kids to just experiment with. So sex is too valuable to just be left out. It's too powerful to just experiment with. Sex needs a container, and the only container capable of holding it together is covenant. When I was a kid, we had a playhouse made of wood. And one time we went and slept out there for the night, and we got cold in the morning, so we decided to make a fire in the playhouse. Don't worry, though. We, we had a metal container that we built the fire within. And after we were done with the fire, we put it out and put a wood covering over the top of it. It was perfect. What could go wrong? Turns out, wood is flammable and metal conducts heat. So about 60 minutes later, we look out there and our playhouse is one massive fireball. Is fire good in the backyard? Depends where it is. Is fire good in the house? Depends where it is. Is sex a good thing to be enjoyed? It depends on the container that's holding it. And the container of Scripture is a covenant. We'll talk more about covenant next week. But today I want to talk more about desire. Because Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, But I say to you, there are these antitheses, is what the scholars call them, commentators call them. It's this, but more than that. And what he's doing is he's drawing on the law of Moses, which says you shall not commit adultery. It's the seventh command. And he's even pulling in some elements of the tenth command, which is don't lust or desire your neighbor's wife. He's he's pulling these commands in from the Old Testament. And he's saying, but this isn't even enough. A biblical view of sex isn't enough Because the Bible has allowances that maybe loopholes that I don't want to to even be there. And one of these loopholes, he says, is lust. So you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus isn't ignoring a covenant view. He's actually deepening a covenant view. And he's saying this has higher stakes than you ever imagined. Jesus is basically saying this. You're not in Moses anymore. The, The law had strict commands. The, the laws of, of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, compared to the Roman laws, were incredibly conservative and strict, and yet Jesus says those aren't quite enough because sex is more powerful, it's more valuable, it's more beautiful than that. It needs to be held in honor. So you're not in Moses anymore. How does, how does he make this point? He says, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is where a married man, and, and he's talking about men here, but it would also be inclusive of women, where a married person has sex with somebody who's not their spouse. And he says, that's what you've heard from the law. But I tell you, I tell you, uh, Bruner in his commentary on Matthew, he says, in the Greek, there's this just overemphasis on this I. I'm the one saying, you see, the prophets of the Old Testament, they would say, thus says the Lord. Jesus doesn't have to say, thus says the Lord, because the Lord is here saying, I say to you, I can tell you what was at the heart of this. I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman 
lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. To look at a woman lustfully. Now, Jesus is being very gendered in his language. It's about men, but I actually want to open that up because what our data shows in our country is that almost all young men are struggling with lust and pornography. That about 90%... Now, pornography is targeting 12 to 17-year-olds, and then in 12 to 17-year-olds, you adopt these habits and ways of being that you continue and carry on. About 90% of young men... Let's just be real. I know who I'm talking to today. I've sat with many of you, and we've talked about porn. We've talked about lust. But the conversations I haven't had very often are about the 60% of young women who are also struggling with porn and lust. Now, this is also really common. And so I'm, I'm not trying to just talk to men today because the majority of young women here today are also struggling with this. And if you feel really alone by that, just know you're not alone. There are many sisters in Christ who understand what those desires are and they understand what those problems are and challenges and they want to walk with you in it, but they, they probably feel some of the same shame about sharing it. I was talking to a couple of young single ladies here. Not all the single ladies, just a few of the single ladies. But, and they describe some of the feelings of shame and guilt. And they were so surprised when I said, yeah, the young men feel the same way. They, they didn't know that because it's not something that we talk about and it's certainly not something we talk about with each other very openly. And so he's saying, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, but it's also true, anyone who looks at a man lustfully, the same thing applies. But there's some really important clarifications here about this language of lust. He says, not with lust, not at, looks at a woman lustfully. It's not looking with lust. It's looking in order to lust. That's what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, Bruner, in his commentary, he says, it's not just a look at another person that's condemned. It's sustained, willful looking, what we in English call staring. The, the looking that Jesus condemns here specifically is lustful looking, staring with the intent to possess or at least to burn. A look happens. This is Luther. He says, I can't keep a bird from flying over my head, but I can certainly keep it from nesting in my hair or biting my nose off. He says, there's a difference between looking and lusting. And the, the distinction there is actually really important because God made beautiful men and women. And he made us to appreciate and to desire beauty. The desires in a Christian view of sex are affirmed. It's not saying that desiring beauty is bad or that desiring sex is bad. No, the desire itself is a good gift of God designed by the maker of sex. But when the desire is to take and to seize and to twist, that's when it gets unhealthy. And so Jesus condemns looking in order to lust. His command, another commentary, is severe, condemning not only lustful looking, but also looking that can lead to lustful looking. This kind of looking seeks power over another person. It's egoism in their enjoyment of power over other people. People are used, in many cases, without them even knowing it. Now, I'm, I've talked about lust, and I've talked about pornography, but the issue of lust and pornography isn't contained in digital screen relationships. It's not just masturbation. There are many types of sexual desire that can warp and twist and break down relationships. We'll talk more about those next week. But really, it's any kind of sexual desire that wants to use other people for the self rather than 
as an act of self-giving love within the covenant. So is all sexual desire sinful? No. Jonathan Pennington, admiring beauty, experiencing the natural attraction to beauty is not the issue here, but rather the purpose of fantasizing about and objectifying another as a sexual partner. This making sense. There is an appreciation, there's a notice, there's a glance, but Jesus is condemning a type of fantasization, type of burning and possessing. Now, in the history of the church, the church has tightened its view of sex to even rule out sex for many people. I don't think that's a Christian view. That's what I'm describing as a Platonic view. And now the church is almost doing the exact opposite in loosening the the Christian view of sex. And so the, the modern church either isn't talking about it or is tolerating far more, but this is not Jesus' teaching. Jesus is deepening what was already a covenant view of sex from the Old Testament. He says, you've already committed adultery. Now, he's not exactly saying that if your partner looks at pornography, they are guilty of adultery. That's, he's not exactly saying they're the same thing, Pennington. He does not equate adultery with lust, thus removing all distinctions. Instead, he's deepening the source of it to look at intent, not just action. And so you can ask, well, what's so bad about lust? One thing that's bad about lust just the nature, this word desire, this word greed, is that greed is never satisfied. Lust is never satisfied. It always wants more. This week, I met with a a Christian sex addiction specialist, and he said that sex addiction and sexual desire is inevitably escalatory. Weird words. Inevitably escalatory. If you're on an uh, escalator, inevitably (laughs) It just keeps going up and up and up. You just want more and more and more. The way our brains are wired means that lust always begets a deeper or darker or more frequent version of it. It's, it's greed in this case. Lust is greed. And as such, it does something to us. It trains your brain to see a man or to see a woman as a sexual object. And then once you see a man or a woman as a sexual object, it begins to train your brain to see all men or all women as sexual objects. And you can say, I, I know, it's just porn. I, I know different. This is a real person. This is just something else. No, it, it's actually rewiring your brain. Neurons that fire together wire together. And so when you experience men and women after frequent experiences of men and women in porn, it teaches you that a real body is not good enough, to use the language of Andy Stanley. Well, that one body is not good enough and that your spouse's body is not good enough. This is teaching you at a neurological level. McKnight, in his commentary, he says, the brain is wired for both sexual pleasure as well as for sexual fidelity, rugged, faithful commitment. Dopamine creates brain pathways, these tunnels of pleasure, if you will, that tell a person to do this again, and then those neurochemical passages make it easier to do again. That's that inevitably escalatory. It just, uh, again and again and again. Thus, any kind of sexual contact begins to create the desire for more sexual connection with that person. In addition to dopamine, the brain releases oxytocin and vasopressin, which tell a woman that a man is hers and that the man that the woman is his. And so this kind of bonding is created every time a human has any kind of sexual experience. Sex is a bonding to another person. All this is to say, Jesus prohibits illicit sexual encounters, whether physical or fantasy, Because God has wired us for sexual fidelity, 
sexual faithfulness, that covenant view, and lifelong rugged commitments of love to one person. Hearts are wired to brains. Brains are wired to commitment. It changes you. It changes your brain, but it also changes your shame. You see, when you experience these things, there's a disorientation that's also happening neurologically where you experience feelings of shame and guilt. Scripture says that sexual sin is actually unique from other types of sin. You may have heard it said that all sin is equal, but that's not Scripture's view. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. You see, a lot of other sins and temptations you endure. You just have to kind of hold on. That's not ever what they say about sexual sin. They say run away from sexual sin, flee it. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. And so there's this shame that comes on as we're sinning against ourselves, and then that isolation of the shame then has it to where it's got us captive. Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, he says, sin wants to, wants to hold a man alone. Confession is breaking free, but sin wants to hold a man alone. And so if lust is greed and greed is idolatry, then sexual desire, when it's twisted in sinful ways, becomes this idol that takes you captive and holds you in bondage. And the terrible thing about idols is that idols never offer a way out. They only offer a way deeper in. An idol will never die for you. They only require more sacrifice. It changes you, but it also changes other people. Every time Bathsheba is mentioned in Scripture, whenever Samuel's telling the story of David's rape of Bathsheba, she's always described in the context of her community. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah. Bathsheba is the daughter of somebody. Because Scripture has this view of people that we aren't just individuals who are just affected by our sin, but actually our web is affected by our sin. She's the daughter of somebody. She's the spouse of somebody. She's a woman. She's a person. And so when you engage in sinful sexual desire and exploitation, it attempts, at least in the mind, to take power over another person. And that power over another person, I think, is a really obvious biblical justice issue. Many people in our culture have passion for justice in many different areas. Sexual sin is, I think, one of the most important justice issues in Scripture because of how it damages you and how it damages a community. And then when a, a community is saturated in sexual sin, it becomes very difficult to rescue out of that level of bondage. It damages you, it damages other people, it fractures your community, and it fractures families. But sin is also a sin against God. In fact, in David's sexual sin in Psalm 51, he says to the Lord, against you, you only, have I sinned. Imagine this, that if you have a child, let's say you have a child, even if you don't. You have a little girl or a little boy, and somebody is sexually fantasizing about your child. And they may say, well, I didn't touch him, I didn't do anything wrong, I was just thinking about them. Don't you know that that <laughs> raises something deep within you? I'm not fully sure how Jesus would handle that situation, but I do know that Jesus forbids that situation. He says, when you sin against a little one like that, it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and for you to be thrown into the depths of the sea. You see, it's a sin against God because these 
are images of God. It's his daughter. It's his son. And so can you, can you imagine that? In every fantasization of a woman or a man is an exploitation of a child of God, of someone made in his image, who's been redeemed at the cost of the life of the Son of God. So, if you look at a woman lustfully, he says the intent, the fantasy, it's already doing something to you and it's doing something to them and it's doing something to God. He says it's not just the act of adultery, it's the intent of adultery and that's already been done in the heart, in the cardia, cardiologist, a cardia, in the heart. I just want to spring just for a second to another text where Jesus talks about the heart. He's still talking about sexual desire in, in some ways, but he's actually telling a story to a, a lot of people that are listening to him. And he's mostly talking about what you eat and what you drink. And he says, it's not what you eat that defiles a person. He says, it's what comes out, not what goes in. He says it like this. Jesus called the crowd to him and he said, listen to un- and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. He's not, not just what you say, but the thing deep within you a little later in verse 17, he says, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. That's that cardia language again. They're, they're coming out of the heart, and these defile them. They, they make them dirty in some way. They, if something was clean, now it's tarnished. He says, our, our hearts have the capacity for good, yes, for beauty, yes, for good and truth, yes. But our hearts also have the capacity for what he says here, out of the heart come evil thoughts. And he starts working through the Ten Commandments. Evil thoughts like murder and adultery. This is commandment six and commandment seven. Then theft, and false testimony and slander, commandment eight, commandment nine, commandment ten. But in the middle of the Ten Commandments, he introduces a brand new one. It's actually not in the Ten Commandments. And it's because Jesus is expanding and deepening the commandments of, of the Scriptures. Now, there's a lot of debate today on whether Jesus opens up sexual practices beyond what was there in the Old Testament. But Jesus instead consistently narrows and restricts what was there in the Old Testament. Here, he's adding on sexual immorality, which is, in Greek, the word porneia. It's, it's this... Sexual, it's all included. It's not just sex outside of a marriage. This is all kinds of sex outside of a covenant. This is, this is lust. This is pornography. This is porneia. It's this much deepened, more strict view in some ways. And so some of us in our culture, we keep hearing the message that our hearts define us. And yes, in many ways they do. But Jesus says, but you need to also know that our hearts also defile us. Our hearts are capable of great good and they're capable of great evil. They can twist and they can distort. And so when we trust our hearts and we just follow after that romantic view of passion and fulfillment, it can easily get off track if it goes outside of the covenant teaching of Jesus. Now, it's not that he's only saying that some people, let's say like a lot of my friends who struggle with same-sex attraction. By the way, I have... I have lots of friends who struggle with same-sex attraction. If that's you today, just know you're not alone either. Um, some of them are even in pretty happy marriages. And it's, it's really hard to navigate sex in a marriage like that. But it is possible in some cases. 
In other cases, it's not possible, and I have friends who've taken basically a commitment to celibacy for life, that they, they can't even imagine being married to a woman, but for them, there can still be fulfillment. I, I have friends who are making commitments to ministry, particularly in this area, because they understand uniquely the loneliness that can happen for somebody who struggles with same-sex attraction in a church. And so he says, um, I, I want to be there. I want to be a voice. I want to be a, someone who's listening there. And so it's not like Jesus is getting a special set of rules for, for some people. In fact, Jesus is saying, in many ways, the opposite. Do you remember the story in Luke 17 about the two men who go up to the temple and they pray? And one is a Pharisee, and he prays, I thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people. And he names off several sins. One of those sins is adulterers, these people who commit sexual immorality. I thank God I'm not those people with sexual sin. And then there's this other man who comes on. He is a tax collector, and he, he beats his chest. He bows his head because he doesn't think he's worthy to stand before God. And he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, which one do you think went home justified that day? The one who's self-justified or the one who comes to God and says, I am a sinner. Every sinner finds that condemnation, that voice of condemnation, is cast out. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It, it defiles and defines, and so we have to find the teaching of Jesus to, to navigate this. So back to Matthew 5 and Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye causes you to stumble right eye is about your, your visual frame. If it causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, now if you have ever asked the question of what does scripture say about masturbation, this is perhaps as close as it gets. Matthew 5 deals with looking with lustful intent, which would include pornography. But whenever he alludes to the right hand, interpreters since since the very beginning, have understood this to be a reference to, to masturbation. And he says, if this is a struggle, not only do you need to change your frame visually, but you need to change your frame. You just got to get out of it. Now, is he saying literally you need to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand and throw it away because that would be better? Now, some Christians throughout Christian history have taken that literally. There's a guy named Origen. He stripped naked one time and rolled through a briar patch. Didn't work. Surprise. <laughs> Even scars heal. And so he ended up castrating himself. That's worse than the hand, man. That's... By the way, origin is not Jesus. That is not... Most people don't think that's at all what Jesus means. Instead, what Jesus seems to be meaning is like, this is important enough to require some kind of heart surgery. That to have a trail of the, the cost that you're willing to give for this, that's a totally reasonable thing. If this costs you something, it's worth it. It would be, you see that phrase he uses twice, it would be better for you. This was better for you. Now, sometimes we hear rules and we don't think that's better for us. We just think, oh, that's more things I can't do that I really want to do. That's not where these rules are coming from. These aren't just rules. These are your designers saying this is the way of life coming from a guy who never had sex. Remember, sex doesn't have to be expressed or fulfilled in order to be fully human. The greatest human who ever lived died a virgin. So cut it off, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown 
into hell. Now, hell seems pretty strong, and it is. There are spiritual consequences, eternal consequences, to the choices we make in this life. This isn't just a teaching on sex, but it is perhaps especially a teaching on sex. But hell isn't just a spiritual eternal reality in this culture. I've talked about this before. Hell, the word Gehenna, refers to a place in Jerusalem on the south side of town. It's the Valley of Hinnom. It's on the map. You could walk there if you're in Jerusalem. It's not an eternal spiritual reality in the future. It is a reality of dark sin and idolatry from the past. Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnom, is where Israel offered their children as sacrifices to the gods of Molech. And it says that you will go down a place where you can't get out, and it will cost you your life and the life of your children. It will destroy you. That valley of Hinnom became a place of devastation, and then it became a place of a trash heap where they would dump corpses and trash, and it was constant burning. He says, this is the end of people who live like this. And just about, not every, but just about every child of divorce can echo that there is chaos on the other side of fragmentation. Just about everyone involved and addicted to pornography would say, this isn't somewhere I want to be. I was reading The Fellowship of the Ring again this week. And Gollum loves his ring, and he hates it, it says. Just as he loves himself, but more so, he hates it. It's this inner duality of chaos, of pain, of death, of trash, that you just can't escape from because all it asks for is more. And eventually, it will ask you to give up your whole life and the life of your children in exchange for it. You will lose your children if you go down the road of sexual sin in your marriage. I have seen it in my own family. You, you will make sacrifices that you do not know you are being asked to make because the idol just asks for more and for more and for more. Is this a crazy view of sex that it would be better to guard our eyes and to guard our hands? Many interpreters say that the guarding the hand is the right hand mistress. John Chrysostom, I think, is the one who says this early, early on. And so it's, it's, you have to cut off these unhealthy relationships that are leading in places. You are not exempt from sexual desire. Everyone is experiencing this. So guard your heart. It will lead to death. This way leads to life. Is this a crazy view? No. This is a high view. And it says that fire belongs in some places and not in others. It says that sex belongs in some places and not in others. And you need a container that's strong enough to hold it. And the only container there is the covenant of a marriage. Again, we'll talk about marriage more next week. It's better for you. Can we just draw out a few implications, and I want to make a few invitations in a more practical way. It's better for you. I, I believe it's better for all of us to go the way of sexual holiness and the way of sexual integrity. And one of those ways, Jesus says, is you have to watch your eyes. Your eyes, what you're seeing. John Chrysostom early, early on. Man, I may not be able to find it. Yeah, here it is. He says, these sexual temptations, <laughs> this is in the, the fourth century. Whence are they, tell me, that plot against our marriages? Is it not from the theater? Whence are they that dig through into bedchambers? Is it not from that stage? So that the subverter of all things is that he that goes into the theater, it is he that brings in a grievous tyranny. Have you ever heard Christians like go on and on about Hollywood? John Chrysostom is saying the same thing in the 300s. And it's because there's filth all over the screens. 
Some, some of our, our just like regular watching needs to change or at least skip through some, some parts, right? And this isn't even about pornography. This is just about television and Netflix and Amazon Prime or HBO and whatever those are. Those images and those experiences are saturating us in ways that I think we, we probably need to guard our eyes in the ways that Jesus says, this is worth it. It's better to not have that. But how much more so for those who are stuck in the bondage of pornography. Now, for those who are stuck in the bondage of pornography, you're saying, I know, I've tried. I've been there. I want out. I don't want to look anymore. There's several tools that we can kind of put together, and I want to talk about just a few of these. One is, can you just add on some screen protections on your, either your router or your computer or your phone? Um, there's many of these available that will just limit even what you can see on your screens. One of these is covenant eyes. And so if you're trying to change what your eyes are seeing and what your screens are showing, covenant eyes at, at the house on your Wi-Fi could help. And if you're a parent, can you just wake up to this reality? <laughs> that the pornography industry is targeting 12 to 17-year-olds and that the first exposure to pornography happens in many cases at an average age of about nine. And so it can be really important to just open your eyes to the reality and the prevalence of what's coming into your home. We've got about 50 kids, 12 and under here, which means many of our families need to start preparing your homes for the holiness of our eyes right now. And if it slows down the, the router, man, it is better to have a slower router <laughs> Than, than to go down this way. If Jesus says it's better to gouge out your eye and throw it away, you, you can have a little slower. If you can't watch a few shows, it's better, right? All right, another way. Man, I love Candy's reflection on confession. Um, I don't even want to add to that. It was beautiful. Amen, sister. But there's this confession that happens when we share our stories in transparency and vulnerability. When it's received in love and safety, that is an essential part of your spiritual healing. Shame wants to hold you alone. Sin wants to have a man alone. But confession breaks free. Confession reaches out and, and finds a brother or sister who can hold on and be there, who can say, me too. You can find community. I wanted to just share a couple of ways where you can find real breakthrough now. One of these ways is through freedom prayer. Freedom Prayer is a ministry here at Oikos Church. We have a prayer team that's trained. And you, you'll get two or three people who pray with you and walk with you through an experience of God. In many cases, he can deal with sin, including sexual sin. It happens all the time. If you're worried, oh, that's going to be weird for the people in there, it's not. It happens all the time. You're, you're not alone here. And the Lord sees you, and he sees you in compassion, not condemnation. Freedom Prayer, this is the QR code to sign up. It's in your bulletin if you don't want to be the guy. Like, But even that, like, don't let that shame stop you. We would love for you to sign up for a Freedom Prayer. And if somebody looks at you, my, my guess is they will be proud of you for seeing you take that step. Not ashamed of you. That shame is not coming from your church family and it is not coming from your Father in Heaven. Another way is... This unwanted course that's based on Jay Stringer's book, Unwanted. Um, 
Stringer did research on about uh, 3,000 people, and he put his results into a really accessible book and a digital course that we're inviting 12 men to do in 12 weeks starting in September. Um, if, if this is an, a need for you, this is an opportunity for confession, for community, and for really deep tools of understanding your story. Stringer says that most churches, well, you remember, I met with a sex addiction specialist. He says, you know, 90% of young people are struggling with this. He says only 7% of churches are doing anything about it. And then the churches that are doing something about it, Stringer calls it, they're just saying lust management. They're just saying, put on covenant eyes, find an accountability partner, muscle through it. And he says, is this really how we're supposed to experience sex in community? It's just like, just shame all the time? No. Instead of shame, he says, you have to become friends with your sexual story. With the things that have happened to you, with understanding where these desires came from, and the childhood desires, how they got distorted in adolescence, and how you, you began coping in unhealthy ways. He says, instead of shame, just embrace your story as, as part of you. That your desires aren't actually pointers to something bad, they're actually pointers to something good. Can I share just some reflections on desire from C.S. Lewis? And we're not taking a vote. I'm going to. I guess I shouldn't have asked. <laughs> C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he says, most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer it to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking now of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we've grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and the chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. He says there's two pathways. There's the fool's way. And so it says, instead of this woman, I'll take a different woman. Instead of this vacation, I'll take a different vacation. I just need another faster car. Most of the bored, discontented, rich people in the world are of this type. He says the other type is the sensible way. The sensible way says, well, just don't expect too much. Don't even try. It's the cynic. But then he says, but there's the Christian way. The Christian says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. And if that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of a copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. 
I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. It's beautiful. Your story, your sexual story, your story of even sexual brokenness is a cue of a longing that isn't satisfied in sex. It's not even satisfied in marriage. It's not satisfied in any of those other ways. He says it's only satisfied in that, that heavenly country, in your father. So, last thing. Jesus says you're not in Moses anymore, and he deepens, and he constricts, and he says we, we have to treat this like the power and the value that it really is. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't end by just saying, you're not in Moses anymore. A couple of months ago, I was journaling and I had a friend come over and we were talking about sexual desire. And he was feeling really burdened and weighed down, just ashamed, stuck. He hadn't talked about it much. And so the voice in his head and that, place of isolation was just condemnation all the time. Are you even a Christian? And so we, we talked about Moses. It was uh, as I was preparing for the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father in heaven. And all of this language comes from the Exodus. In the Exodus, you have this father who rescues his children from slavery, from bondage from idols, and he smashes them, he drowns them in the sea, and he brings them out, and he says, now I'm going to lead you, I'm going to give you law, the father of Exodus is beautiful and good, and yet, the Moses that rescued them still had this voice of condemnation that came back. There's a voice that came from the law. The law was there to show them what they were doing wrong. And then by showing them what they were doing wrong, it left them in a place where they kept having to offer sacrifices day after day, year after year, so that they could find atonement and to be back with God. But guys, you're not in Moses anymore. You are in the son of the father. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, he says, who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus died and is crucified and is seated at the right hand of God interceding for you. If, if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son for you, but he delivered him up for us all. How shall he withhold anything for us? You are not condemned in Christ. There is no condemnation there. There is no sin that he cannot forgive. There is no slavery that he cannot break free. There is no isolation where he can't welcome you into his community of love. Christ Jesus saves sinners. And so we go not saying, I thank God that I'm not like those other people. That is not the voice of Christians. The Christians are the people who go up to our Father and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And when we see Jesus on the road, we see, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me. And every time he does, Jesus has mercy on you in your sin. He wants you to be free. I hope you're hearing me say both things today. Jesus is raising the standard and he's deepening his love in incredible ways that I don't understand. My own voice of condemnation, I've talked about it many times. I call her Sheila. She's always active here. She, he, whatever. But that is not the voice of love. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and we cry out, Abba, Father. 
Don't let the loneliness of your sin be mistaken for the joy that's found in the redemption of Jesus Christ and his blood. He washes all of us clean. If we say we have no sin, we are liars and we don't practice the truth. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Just. Not to condemn us, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. How can it be just to forgive us? Because he put Jesus on the cross for our sins. Our sins have already been crucified. They have already been nailed to the cross. He is just because when he looks at your sin, he sees that it's already been paid and it would be unjust to double dip for that payment. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins because we have the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. So if you feel guilt because of your past and your past sin, if you feel shame because of how you're currently trapped, if you feel like I've been stepping on your toes today, know that the the voice of love is there beckoning you back to the way of Jesus. It is better for you. Let that be the last word. Would you stand? I just want to pray. God, be merciful to me and to us sinners. Would you silence the voice of the accuser and we draw, would you draw us to yourself in your voice of love? Would you transform our hearts? Lord, for those doing unwanted, would you help them find a way through their story of desire back to you? And would you do it for your kingdom and your glory? Amen.